This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. My name is Judy Cho, and I am board certified in holistic nutrition. I focus on getting to root cause, and oftentimes that is using the Carnivore Cures meat only elimination diet. Please make sure to subscribe, hit the bell. If you're listening on podcasts, please make sure to leave a review. This is how I get my information in front of more people. So thank you for that. Today, I had the honor and pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Arthur Agustin. Dr. Arthur Agustin attended New York University School of Medicine, and he did his internal medicine training at Montfiore Medical Center at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and his cardiology fellowship at NYU. Dr. Agustin's clinical cardiology practice is very much devoted to prevention. And his calcium score is used at major universities, medical centers, including Mayo Clinic and John Hopkins. If you don't know him, he is the creator of the coronary artery calcium score, also known as the calcium score, also known as the Agatston score. It is an honor to be speaking with somebody that has provided a test to measure how our heart health is doing. We get into a lot of the detail, a lot of signs of. Risk for heart disease. We get into all these nuances. I hope that you listen to this in its entirety because there is so much important information about diet, nutrition, how to know if you're pre pre diabetic, and the importance of understanding beta cell dysfunction versus just being insulin resistant and healing, and also how that all relates to diabetes and how you can check things in the future or signs of even with your children that they may be starting to go. Down this rabbit hole of metabolic syndrome. Let's get right into this interview. Hi, Dr. Agatston. I'm so, so excited to interview you. You know, it was an honor, a pleasure to meet you at Boca Raton Low Carb Conference. And just hearing you speak and talking about the craft test beta cell dysfunction, I just wanted my community to really hear all this knowledge and wisdom that you share. And first of all, thank you for creating the CAC score, or the Agatston score. This is such a Important test. If you can just share with the community who you are and the test. Sure, sure. It's such a, a pleasure to be with you and really enjoy、uh, chatting with you at the, at the low, low carb meeting. And、uh, 
I'm still a practicing preventive cardiologist. And uh, in, in Miami Beach, our office were refugees from a, a lot of medical centers, but uh, done a, a lot of teaching and research over the years. We are developing a new preventive fellowship program with, with my colleague, Kerm Nasser, and with Ron Krauss. It'll be based at Methodist Hospital and the DeBakey Center. So where cardiologists finish their training, go into intervention and or, or uh, electrophysiology. Issue with prevention is it's many silos. So it's, it's certainly cholesterol, lipidology, but diabetology, it is also imaging, and of course, nutrition, fitness, and you just, nobody's really integrating them in clinical practice, and there aren't fellowships that are covering the gamut. And so that's, that's, that's the purpose of what we do in our office, and the purpose of this new fellowship as well. Well, thank you. And that's um, very exciting. I'd love to have you come on and share about it when it opens up. But let's talk a little bit about the coronary artery calcium score, or also known as the Agatson score. Who is this test for? Why do most practitioners not measure this and they just look at cholesterol? Can you talk a little bit about the score? Sure. I mean, the history is when I finished my training, came down to South Florida, Mount Sinai, um, I was interested in prevention. And I learned from Dr. Castelli, who was the second director of the Framingham Project, that cholesterol, total cholesterol, and LDL cholesterol were very bad predictors of who is going to have a heart attack. Most people who have, have heart attacks actually have average cholesterols and average LDL. So, and then the only treatment we had was the Heart Association low-fat diet, which I know your community knows never really worked. And cardiologists, frankly, just weren't using it. Then in the late 80s came along the statin drugs, and you could really lower the cholesterol considerably. Uh, But the question was who to lower it in. If you did it with everybody, just with average cholesterol, that would be the whole country. And, you know, that didn't work. And if you gave it to just people with very high cholesterols, you were missing the majority of people who had heart attacks. And uh, my the chief of medicine there, it was at Mount Sinai, Miami Beach, he actually was trained in the 1940s and was, was doing fluoroscopy where you could see coronary calcium. And he did that. You had to put on a lead apron, apron in the office. And but because of that, I knew about the coronary calcium literature, and I knew two important things, that when you saw calcium in a coronary artery, it meant it was arteriosclerosis, um, and essentially uh, nothing else, and that it took a lot of calcium, we knew from pathology studies, a lot of coronary calcium before somebody actually had a heart attack. So I, I knew those things, and then in the late 80s, all of a sudden, we had access to a fast CAT scanner. So the conventional CAT scanners then, they were good if you were lying still and if the organ wasn't moving like your brain, but the heart, which was beating, you just got a blur. So you couldn't do CTs of the heart. So this was a new technology. It was these CT scanners it was called the Imitron Ultrafast CT. They were twice as expensive as other scanners, and they weren't any better if the, for the brain that wasn't moving. 
but you could freeze the heart and you could see coronary calcium exquisitely and quantify. So to me, that was a potential answer. We could see how much, whether there was arteriosclerosis and how much, and then we, at that point, could learn, uh, you know, really who needed the statin drugs then. And later, as we have much more effective uh, nutrition therapy and other medications, we know who has a problem. And everybody has their own level of coronary calcium. Um, I'm sorry, their own level of cholesterol, where it's actually getting into the vessel wall. So we have patients with cholesterols over 300. Sometimes it's in the low carb community that develop that who have absolutely squeaky clean vessels. And then we have people with cholesterols well under 200, um, often diabetics who have a lot of plaque. So the cholesterol just doesn't tell you. And the plaque is present and builds up 20, 30, 40 years before you have a heart attack. So if you're in your early 40s heading for a heart attack in your 60s and 70s, you will already have plaque. So we can see the plaque early and we can we can follow it to monitor our, our treatment, both nu- nutrition, lifestyle and medication where, where it needed. You mentioned in your talk at Boca Raton that instead of just looking at total cholesterol, that we should look at particle size, that there are certain types of particles for LDL. And if you can just speak to that. Sure. Total cholesterol is a very poor predictor. At the beginning, that's all we could measure. And total cholesterol was just really a surrogate for LDL cholesterol. LDL cholesterol is just a surrogate for sometimes ApoB or the actual number of LDL particles, which is really just a surrogate for the number of small LDL particles. And it turns out that the cholesterol particles that get in the vessel wall and cause arteriosclerosis are essentially always small and dense. And in fact, um, and particularly for the carnivore community as well, red meat uh, increases total cholesterol but it only increases large cholesterol, which in general does not cause atherosclerosis. And even in early statins where they treated big groups, only those with small LDL got benefit. Mm-hmm. So the small LDL particles, they, they're not cleared efficiently by LDL receptors in the liver. And they're in the bloodstream for a longer period of time is called the residence time. And while a lipoprotein like the small LDL is in the, in the bloodstream for a long time, it gets oxidized and it also gets gluconated if your uh, blood, sh- blood sugar is high. That makes it sticky and it sticks into macrophages in the vessel wall and builds up the early plaque. So total cholesterol, and if you know whether you should be treated again, the people we see with cholesterols over 300, squeaky clean vessels, a zero calcium score. And by the way, if you have a zero calcium score, you certainly don't need a statin. You have a good, you have good prognosis and will live a long, healthy life. So that's the problem with the small cholesterols is they're not cleared efficiently. They get oxidized, they get sticky. And also People like diabetics who have a lot of small LDL cholesterol, sometimes it means that total cholesterol 
is not very high, but they're still at risk. You mentioned that the large cholesterol, sometimes eating a lot of meat will produce the large fluffy ones. But what about the small ones? I mean, what causes us to have these smaller, dense particles? <clears throat> hey, guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. You know, what, what happens, and this has to do with insulin problems and diabetes, but also pre-diabetes and what I call pre-pre-diabetes, because this really starts early in life. But what happens is first you have a tendency to high insulin levels and they get higher when you have uh, sugar, anything with fructose, as well as processed carbohydrates, white bread. Um, and the glucose and the fructose in the liver when your insulin level is high gets turned into fat. And the fat causes a fatty liver early. Any overweight teenager in this country already has a fatty liver. And that overflows, it, the liver tries to get rid of it in very low density lipoprotein particles, VLDL. And instead of, it always sends some uh, cholesterol as VLDL, and it goes around the body, it gives triglycerides and cholesterol, to the organs that need it, and, and it, it returns and gets cleared by the liver. The bigger particles are, in a sense, distorted. They're, they don't go into receptors easily, and their metabolism is very slow. And again, there's a long residence time of all of these particles. They start large, um, then they become intermediate lipoproteins, uh, they're remnant particles, and eventually they become small and very small LDL. So the most common cause of small LDL is our sad, you know, the standard American diet. And it's very, very common. Now, the other uh, point that um, we're working on actually with Methodist and with Dr. Ron Krauss is some people have congenital small particles. And this is one of the reasons why thin, healthy people sometimes have plaque and have risk. And they, for, for just genetic reasons, make very small particles. It's still not cleared. They're still atherogenic. And so the great majority in this country, it's due to our bad lifestyle, but it can be familial congenital as well. How often is that familial congenital one, like what in, in the U.S. population, how often do you see that? We don't have large studies yet, okay. but it's not uncommon at all. As far as people with heart attacks, especially early heart attacks, I have many families where we see it in parents who maybe had bypass surgery in their 40s, and the kids have it also, and they may already have, have plaque. So they may be in the 30s. Um, we, do, uh, be, we do an early calcium score. Normally, we wouldn't do it for a male until they're in their 40s and a female till they're postmenopausal. But if there's a bad family history, we do it earlier. And so 
Some, they may be thin, apparently healthy, but a bad family history. Uh, they already have plaque, and the major risk factor is very small LDL particles. And that we can then start treatment early, which we've done. And I, it's, it's not uncommon, especially in thin people with bad family histories of heart disease. Right. If the particle size is a large predictor, and then there's a, this CAC score that also is a great predictor, why are we not using that and only focusing on, well, let's get your HDL, your LDL, your triglycerides, and the ratios may help with some of that. But why are we not doing the particle size and even the CAC score for almost everyone? Well, the science is clear and the CAC score is part of the national guidelines. I should think it should have been there 20 years ago. One of the problems was that initial scanner that I mentioned. And, you know, it was it was like able to shoot like shooting a, a, a picture of a, a racehorse. If you have a slow shutter speed, you get a blur fast so to speak, it stops the action. So this was originally the only technology that could do it. And it was more expensive. It was good for pediatric hospitals because kids were moving and moving during the CT, you could stop the action also. But it, at that point, it wasn't covered by insurance. What happened around 2000 after is what are called the multi-slice scanners. Now they're up to over you know, 200 slices in the newest CT scanners. They became faster. So today, the scanner that you use for all your standard testing can be used for the heart test. So it got, it got used. It's now it's used at all the major medical centers and even private uh, diagnostic centers all around the world. And so now it's much more standard, but still, we still see people who have heart attacks, including physicians, and they never had a calcium score. And again, the calcium score is going to be positive on many, many years before you have a heart attack. So it absolutely should be done routinely um, with anybody who's at risk. And I, I think everybody should be screened general men after the age of 40 and women after postmenopause because they get a little delay in their in their risk although then they they catch up and earlier if there's a bad family history or risk factors and the thing about the coronary calcium is it integrates all your risk factors right. so you know where you can't make an algorithm uh, you know there are there are 20 30 40 risk factors that combine differently in everybody to cause coronary disease. And the, but you don't have a heart attack without plaque. And now, if you're a smoker, you may have a heart attack with less plaque because what causes a heart attack is what I call a cholesterol pimple filled with cholesterol pops and causes a thrombosis, causes a blood clot. And usually that heals over and just causes a lumpy, bumpy vessel. And it's not in general till it's a very lumpy, bumpy vessel with abnormal flow that you progress to more arteriosclerosis and a heart attack. But if you're a smoker, which is a thrombogenic, it predisposes to clot, or in certain families where there's a history of easy clotting, they can have a heart attack with a much lower calcium score and rarely with a zero calcium score because they develop um, 
a plaque. We've seen people with uh, where they have abnormal platelet aggregation and they have an infection and it causes the platelets to aggregate and causes a heart attack with really no warning. And other than the family history, it's hard. But the main thing for the general population is if you're young and you're smoke and you're a smoker, then don't count on the calcium score. It still says you're lower risk, but you got to stop smoking. Wow. Then do the calcium score. In your talk right now, you just mentioned that for some people, when they have a heart attack, they will have plaque for a while. And you mentioned that before someone is even diagnosed with prediabetes, that they just may have beta cell dysfunction, that the, the pancreas may be having some pancreatic fat. How does that happen? Um, if you can explain why this is such an important topic. Right. It's very, very important. It's actually very well documented and it's not out there. So it's in, uh, can we share a slide now? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Now we're going to review the natural history of insulin resistance and beta cell dysfunction. So first, I'm going to show you that this is glucose levels as indicated by hemoglobin A1c, which you see on this on this axis. And you don't become diabetic until the A1c is 6.5. They realized that people were getting sick before they hit 6.5. Now they talk about prediabetes, which is an A1c of 5.7. Now, the issue is you don't become diabetic with a high glucose until your insulin level is very, very low and you're not getting the blood glucose into your cells. And so this is insulin level after a meal or after a glucose as part of a glucose tolerance test, but where you measure insulin. And so here you're not becoming diabetic or pre-diabetic until your insulin level is really, really low. But what we know, and there was a good study from Yale um, by Dr. Uh, Peterson, insulin resistance starts in your 20s or teens. So if you check an insulin level on any overweight teenager, it's going to be very, very high. But their glucose level is going to be normal. And that's because they have very high insulin levels in the many hundreds that's able to keep the A1C, the glucose level down. So when people just go to their doctors, they say, well, you're not diabetic, don't worry. They already have bellies and they will already have lipid abnormalities. Now, what happens is the high insulin levels turns the sugar and glucose, the bad carbs into fat in your liver. And as I mentioned, that overflows into your bloodstream into the viscera. That's why you see the bellies. And more recently, we realized it's into your pancreas as well. That was taught to us by Roy Taylor from Newcastle, England, who did high resolution MRIs. The, the pancreas is harder to see than the liver. Liver fat with an MRI is quite easy to see with the newest, the three Tesla MRIs, but it's tougher to see the pancreas it's further, it's in the back of the abdomen. But he showed that you do have a fatty pancreas as well as the fatty liver, and that correlates with the beta cell dysfunction. In the natural history of diabetes, for years, your insulin is going down until it goes low enough 
that the glucose is staying in the bloodstream and you're diagnosed with prediabetes or diabetes. And in fact, your A1C is going up for all, all this, this period of time. And the thing is that before you're finally told you're pre-diabetic or diabetic, this whole area where you have insulin resistance and progressive beta cell dysfunction and your A1C is going up, you are already sick. And this is all below the radar. Right. So unless you do, uh, you actually measure insulin levels after a meal or after glucose tolerance, you won't know where you are. But during this period, people already have bellies. They already have fat in their liver and the viscera. Some, you can hardly see the fat in the liver. And these are the people we call tofies, thin on the outside, fat on the inside. But a very good percentage of people who are heading for problems, you wouldn't say are, are fat. And I can show you examples of this. Mm -hmm. During this period of time, the triglyceride is overflowing from the liver, the storage form of fat. Right. And so triglycerides are high. HDL, the good cholesterol, is low. You have fatty liver and you already can have coronary calcium and even coronary disease all during this period where your A1C is pre, it's normal. That's why I call this pre-pre-diabetes. Right. This stage of the natural history of insulin resistance, beta cell dysfunction is being overlooked, but people are already sick. And if you just go to an airport of any public event where you see all the people with bellies and it can be relatively small bellies, it means they already have fat in their liver, some fat in their pancreas, their triglycerides are too high. They're already having the pathophysiology of what causes heart attack, stroke, and eventually what would have called the macrovascular heart attack and stroke. Um, but even the microvascular, the retinopathy, the kidney problems, nephropathy, neuropathy, they happen relatively early as well. So we have to get people understanding how to catch the people that are running below the radar. And that's where the craft test comes in. Here is a normal craft test. Now, this is done a glucose tolerance test. You measure glucose here, fasting 30 minutes, 60, 90, and 120 minutes. And the problem is pregnancy is a good example because women go for a glucose tolerance test when they're pregnant to see if they have gestational diabetes. Right. And often it's normal in overweight women, women with hypertension, people uh, that they may be heading for preeclampsia. So the glucose tolerance will be normal, but when you measure insulin, it won't be. But normally the insulin peaks at 30 minutes. That's sometimes called first phase insulin response. Here you drink the 75 grams of glucose, same as with the insulin, the glucose tolerance test. It peaks in the 30s, 40s, 50s, the insulin level, and then it comes back to normal by 120 minutes. Here is what happens in diabetes. So you give the same drink, but the first phase, you don't make insulin because you have severe beta cell dysfunction in the pancreas. And so there's a real delay in making insulin. 
And as things get worse, um, eventually you do make some insulin, up to 30, 40 units. Now, and then it stays up for a long time. This is important because this is not nearly enough insulin to get your blood sugar normal. By definition, this fellow's A1C was 7.4. But when the insulin level stays up, it blocks you from accessing your own sugar stores, glycogen in your, in your liver and muscle and fat in your belly and in your fat stores. So if your blood sugar falls, you are really hungry because normally you just go to your own fat and glycogen and bring your blood sugar up. But while the insulin is up, it, it blocks the enzymes that give you access to your own stores. This is a 23-year-old with diabetes in the family. And his mother was concerned because he came back from college and uh, during COVID and it was fast food and beer and gained five pounds. Now, he still looks thin. His BMI is 21 and he gained five pounds. So in his A1C is 5.4.9, you'd say normal. But when you do the craft test, here's fasting. He peaks late. And he's peaking at 140 instead of he should be peaking here at 60. And at two hours, he still has a high insulin level of 40. So in this apparently normal young person, he is on his way to weight gain and diabetes. And we can talk about usually the weight gain happens in his 30s, 40s. It's interesting. It's associated with building your career, having kids, and often we see it later when people are very successful, they retire or they sell their business. That's the other time when they they put on weight and actually become more pre-diabetic or diabetic. One thing I wanted to bring up is in the last slide you showed where the person had seven point something A1C, the person was only 16 years old. Is that correct? No, no, I'm sorry. He had type two diabetes. For oh, 16 for 16 years. years. Okay, got it. This okay. is happening. It's a good question because this is happening in 16 year olds. More and more, it can go through the whole natural history when they're young. And that's still, it's relatively unusual. It depends on the, on the population. Um, but the thing is, it already you're, it is causing problem for people in their twenties right. and thirties, and they may not feel well. They may have reactive hypoglycemia. I think I I have an example of that. Yeah, here's a fellow, actually a physician, just turned fifty. He already had plaque calcium score of fifty eight, right. which is high um, for his age. A1C was officially normal, not even pre-diabetic at 5.6. And here's his belly, went on a low-carb diet with some intermittent fasting, and he lost 13 pounds, 10 pounds of fat, a little bit of lean body mass he lost, and 3% of his percent body fat. The interesting thing was he was getting up in the middle of the night, anxious, hungry, would go to the refrigerator, eat, and go back to sleep. When he put on the diet, we didn't actually get that history. We didn't promise anything. 
he came back and said, we cured his anxiety and depression. Right. So he thought that his waking up in the night, in the middle of the night, you feel anxious when you're hypoglycemic. But we, this was his first craft test. So if he's eating at night, the insulin is peaking high at 250 and is staying high throughout the night. So in the middle of the night, your brain is still working, your heart's beating, your kidneys are working, you need glucose, you need blood sugar to keep everything going. So your blood sugar drops. So normally, no problem. You just get some extra glucose out of your out of your liver, and your blood sugar stays normal and you sleep through the night. But if you have this persistent high insulin level, it blocks your access to the fat and sugar stores. And so when his blood sugar came down in the middle of the night, he woke up hypoglycemic, really, really hungry, which he interpreted as anxiety and depression cured. And this was his, just after a few months, um, his A1C went from 5.6 to 5.1. And he still is insulin resistant. It's, It's peaking high, but not nearly as high. And it's coming down almost to normal. And if you go for another hour overnight, the insulin is low enough that he can then access his own sugars uh, when the blood sugar falls. So he stopped waking up in the middle of the night. And we really, on the way to, to curing his insulin resistance and beta cell dysfunction, but we, uh, he thought we cured his anxiety and depression. One thing I want to just note here, especially for the people that are just hearing the audio version of this, is that this person, their A1C started at 5.6. He had weight to lose, but and then his A1C went down to 5.1 on a low-carb diet. Weight loss was 13 pounds. So if you were to just get the standard blood markers, his markers look really good. But the key is that even after all this healing, if he were to go off his diet, he is still technically insulin resistant, having beta cell dysfunction. Is that correct? Yes, that's okay. really, really important that the both when you look at the American population, they keep increasing the ALT, the liver enzymes right. they, that they call normal. And that's because they're taking what's the average with right. 95% confidence limits. In fact, the whole, most of the population has some fatty liver. So our average ALTs are going up. When they take in really populations and look at triglycerides over HDL, which is an indication of small LDL in a huge population, again, it's going up and it's going up when your A1C is perfectly normal, like five, it starts to go up. Right. In, in fact, A1C and coronary plaque, coronary calcium. Again, it goes up before somebody hits that artificial threshold of 5.7 or 6.5. So the disease, the macrovascular disease starts when we're saying you have a normal A1C less than 5.7, goodbye and good luck. So that's this, and it is literally most Americans. So this is a huge population and anybody with a belly even if they're otherwise thin. So in terms of the craft test, can you explain, you know, how do we get this craft test? But should we all be getting it if we have a little bit of a pooch? Yeah, I or a family history. Right. Remember, it was uh, Dr. Peterson did the study at Yale. And this was 
Yale thin undergraduates, mm. not weight, but with family history of, of diabetes. And a good percentage of them already had high insulin levels, like I showed you in that 23-year-old, right. you know, apparently young, thin fellow. So it's hidden. And if there's family history, if you put on any weight since being a, a teenager, you should have the test. Now, it's not, it's simple. And many labs do glucose tolerance tests. So doctors have to ask them to just, they can measure the glucose, but also measure the insulin level. It's not being done out there widely. It's tough to do in an office. We now get sort of all our patients to do it the way our, our office is, is run and they're used to it. Right now, you still need a, a, a stick five times. So it's a bit of a pain, but, but, you, but it will be with, with just finger sticks instead of having uh, to do a venipuncture. So it will be getting easy, but it's something that the whole population should have. Should have. And we're just, we're just behind with national guidelines. And logistically, it's not easy. And I should mention the importance of this and the fact that that beta cell dysfunction is occurring in these people in their 20s. That was shown by Dr. Ralph DeFranzo. Now, he is sort of the guru of diabetes. He's been funded by the NIH since the 1970s. And he's worked out a lot of this with that insulin resistance beta cell function. But he does it with very complicated tests, the uh, glucose insulin clamp, where you, you have to bring people in for intravenous insulin and glucose drips. And it's so from his data, we know that the beta cell dysfunction occurs really early where I showed you, and so does insulin resistance, but it's just too expensive, too logistically difficult. So the craft test, it's a bit of a logistical problem, but it's not expensive and it's inexpensive and it's very easy to do. And, and that's why we do it in our office routinely And I've been excited because we're just learning so much. And what I realize now, we can see and quantify the beta cell dysfunction as well as the insulin resistance. What's fascinating about it is, I mean, like you mentioned, it's pre-pre-diabetes and it just gives you a pulse on truly how metabolically healthy you are before any other indicators will show it. Um, I know that you mentioned, though, that for low carb dieters, you can't just go out and run and get the craft test because your body has to be a little assimilated to eating some carbs. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. If you're in ketosis, yes, then your body is trying to sustain it. It's during like during starvation. Right, right. Your body wants to keep your blood sugar relatively high to supply your brain with glucose. And because of that, you have a physiologic insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, you have to break your diet. We have sometimes a battle with people. They don't want to do it. Uh, Not to mention that you're drinking 75 grams of of glucose. It's not that bad. I've done it. But you you don't want to go into the craft test in ketosis because you can be, again, physiologically uh, a little insulin resistant and get a falsely high, um, it, it, it's a true high insulin level, 
Right. But it's not, it's not toxic. Right. Right. And it's more, it's more that your body's almost very insulin sensitive. So when the, it yes. may just spike more than is. So how early do you have to start maybe eating carbs? You just have to be out of ketosis. Is that correct? Just a, a few days. I mean, okay. you're out of ketosis usually is fine. Okay. Yeah. Three, four you know, days before you come in. And by the way, I did, I have a, a picture and this is just, it describes, especially anybody who's lived in bear country or vacation in bear country, because bears, before they hibernate, put on about 800 pounds. Right. And obviously, that's a lot of eating, a lot of intake. And what happens is at the beginning of the fall, their insulin levels go up normally. Yes. In humans, it's the beginning of pregnancy. That's the concern about risk of gestational diabetes. The bear has to store fat for the hibernation. The pregnant mother has to store fat for herself and her baby. Right. And teenagers also will have uh, increased insulin levels. So for the bear, they then begin to ap- deplete the forest of berries. And anybody who has a home or vacation in bear country, you can't leave garbage out, even if it's locked. They'll get in, they go into homes and open the refrigerator, they climb trees and get into bird feeders, they have sugar. And the thing is, once it's mid to late fall, they've already put on, say, 500, 600 pounds. Why are they hungry all the time? Right. Well, the reason is they have beta cell dysfunction as well. So their insulin levels are going up and they're up all the time. So the bears are running around, their blood sugars are falling, but again, they can't access their own fat that they're storing up for the hibernation. And that's why they're so aggressive in climbing trees and going into people's backyards to get food at at any cost. Now, once the winter comes, they're programmed, they go into the den and they fall asleep. Now, when they're not having all the berries, their insulin levels fall. So now they can access their fat stores and that's what they do for their winter hibernation. So, you know, our sleep every night, like the patient I showed you, that's our little hibernation. And we sleep through the night, the bears, you know, uh, sleep through the winter. But if your blood sugar falls and you can't access because your insulin levels are high, that's when you're going to be hungry. And I know, Judy, you can ask a little about different forms of hunger, because when you're hypoglycemic, nothing is going to stand between you and getting some sugar to bring up your blood sugar. So discipline will not work. And, you know, um, I'll tell you my personal story. I was always super thin as a teenager and, you know, young doctor. And in my later 40s, 50s, Without realizing it, I had developed a belly. Mm. It was pointing out, pointed out by one of our cardiology fellows when I was boasting about some athletic exploit, and he laughed at me and said, "Look at your belly. What you know? You're an athlete." And so <laughs> I was shocked. That's what kind of led to the original South Beach diet. But at that point, at the end of the day, I would be feeling shaky, dizzy, ready to pass out. I I knew I was hypoglycemic. I'd make a run for the doctor's lounge, have a low-fat blueberry muffin Mm -hmm. um, with a cup of coffee. That brought up my blood sugar. 
but we weren't measuring insulin levels then. But in retrospect, I was having a sustained high insulin level. And when you have that, you have to get your blood sugar back up. And I mean, sometimes you're pouring out adrenaline and cortisol, that might do it, but you're, you're going to eat. Now, another cause of hunger is ghrelin and other hormones, <laughs> but in particular, ghrelin goes up during meal times and then goes down in an hour. And this, almost everybody's experienced, you're a little hungry at lunchtime, your ghrelin has gone up, but you're in the middle of a project, get into your project and a few hours go by and you realize you didn't eat lunch and you're not hungry. Right. That's because your ghrelin has gone down and you've accessed your, your, own, your own sugar stores. So mealtime hunger is that's where discipline, just not eating is very easy. And people who do fasting today, I'm not hungry because I do it regularly. Sure. Um, now, the third problem, which is something that I've always experienced, I've experienced all the types of, of hunger, is, is sugar addiction and sometimes carb addiction. Right. And that works the same as all other addiction. And that's when, and they've done studies in, in rats with, they're addicted to cocaine and sugar, and they can hit the cocaine bar or the sugar bar. Mm -hmm. And they actually have been shown to hit the sugar bar more than the cocaine bar. And, but both the cocaine, the sugar, video games, alcohol, all types of addiction hit your nucleus accumbens in your brain and produce dopamine and you get that dopamine high. I realized it's another story, with the South Beach keto-friendly diet, where one evening eating with the family, we had a perfectly healthy diet uh, dinner and we had a blueberry pie from uh, the local farm stand and I was inhaling it and my son and my wife said, you know, slow down, dad, slow down, Arthur. And so I slowed down. When they all left, I went into the kitchen, took the rest of the pie and finished the whole thing. And at that time, I was reading Dr. Robert Lustig's book, The Hacking of the American Mind, how strong the sugar addiction was. And I realized I was really addicted. And it wasn't self-discipline in that case. Mm -hmm. But once knowing that I could discipline myself, I got super strict and I was strict like for eight months before I really cheated. And my experience today, un not unlike many of my patients, is in I fast most of the day, intermittent fasting, you know, in the late afternoon, early evening, the ghrelin may go up. That's when I'll often eat something, but I can outlast that with discipline, no problem. It's when I have dinner and have something sweet for dessert. Yes. And my feeling is this can be something with a sweetener. And that hits the nucleus accumbens. Mm -hmm. And I still battle with that. Now, if you don't have anything sweet, I, I know for a time you can get rid you know, sort of that addiction, at least temporarily, although it comes back. For me this year, over Thanksgiving, the pies, it came back. <laughs> And so those are the three, you know, the food time addiction is easy to overcome. The hypoglycemia is almost impossible. That Those people, although if you fast 
it gives time for your insulin levels to go down. Right. So you can then make your own, you know, access your own sugar and fat to keep your glucose normal. So often we, you know, for people with hypo, reactive hypoglycemia, we say fast, you get rid of the hypoglycemia, and then you just have to deal with once you start eating, if you are sugar addicted. One thing that I loved about your talk now, and even at the um, conference is that you see so many patients, you have created this calcium score, and you are furthering identifications of how to protect yourself from heart disease. Yet you still have this humble side of you that is willing to share struggles of I may have sugar addictions or other things that the humanistic side of us and that we can practice all these things and preach them, but we are still human and we will still struggle with some of this sugar addiction. And I am very, very grateful that you are so honest and candid about this because we need to hear these things that it is not just the doctor writes a note and they are perfect, but we are flawed as humans. It's we all struggle with the same things. And then with that thought, I think that's where for me, carnivore helped way more than keto did because the 20 grams or the whatever amount of grams allotted to carbs on good days, it was like steamed veggies. And then on bad days, it was, well, if it fits your macros, a Snickers bars would fit. But that little drip of sugar, it was like the rat um, where on some days I wanted to tap it a lot more and then it would lead to a binge. Whereas if you just decided that all carbs are off the table, that they are no longer food, then that taste for sugar eventually dissipates. And then just like an alcoholic, if I just never touch sugar, then that struggle while I remember memories and smells because I'm not having the sugar anymore that struggle is a lot less difficult. I, I agree 100%. And when I first realized the sugar addiction, and again, I don't know, it was eight, 10 months longer before, uh, the first thing I tried was a key lime pie at Joe's Stone Crab. And the first time I usually, if it was a group and we shared, I would finish it before anybody got their fork on it. But I actually had one one bite and uh and could and could stay. So I agree. The other thing about carnivore, I believe, we had an interesting experience in that our original South Beach diet uh, was it was the first phase, which I think was a mistake, was only two weeks. And people always wanted to stay on the first phase of the diet because they felt great. And by the way, the one thing that kept me um, compliant was I feel so great when I'm avoiding all, all the carbs. And so we first thought, well, the first phase, the fast weight loss phase, and that's what people wanted to do, fast weight loss. But then started to hear about gluten. And I realized that the first phase was intentionally grain-free. So you don't have swings in blood sugar and insulin. It was unintentionally gluten-free because if you're not having wheat flour and rye, you're not having gluten. So things like psoriasis clearing up, you know, acne, joint pains, it's things we, we see with low, low carb, but if you're, um, but you're also gluten-free. And we actually wrote a, a book, the, the, uh, the Gluten-Free South Beach Diet, because I started taking patients off gluten. In fact, my nurse practitioner at the time had severe reflux and um, was going to GI people, getting endoscopies over a long weekend. We took her off gluten 
She said it was like turning off a faucet. Right. So this was years of an issue. And so, and we've seen a lot of examples in our practice and there's a growing literature around that. And then people are talking about leptins, which I have a lot less personal experience, except that lectin, the thing about gluten, it's it's a protein, a storage for protein. It's it's storing the amino acids that you can make stems and leaves out of in plants. And uh, and so lectins are similar. It's it's proteins. And the amino acids certainly in gluten are difficult to metabolize. And if it's incompletely metabolized, it's toxic to the small intestine. Um, that can cause a leaky gut. It can cause autoimmune disease. It can cause malabsorption. And I've seen the spectrum of all that in many patients and a lot of great, great examples. Lectins, I've had less experience, but if somebody has autoimmune problems, like of course, the Petersons have, have, have had and talked about um, autoimmune and other things, I think the true elimination diet to me is sort of steak and eggs. You get maybe some, your, uh, uh, some organ meat as well and start from there. Sure. And then you try back if you want a starchy, a starchy vegetable. But um, I, I think uh, carnivore is the most natural diet and, and a great place to start for somebody, especially where there are issues. You, know, you see how well you feel and you can add something back right. to see if you tolerate it. Um, it's the same thing we say with, you know, with, with gluten, it's like people lactose intolerance. Some can add no problem with a little cream in their coffee right. um, or milk, but if they have an ice cream sundae, they're very sick. And so there's a spectrum um, with a lot of this. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that's where when working with individuals and patients, you see the differences. So you can't just have one custom way because it will be very different for different people. And if somebody struggles with sugar addiction, then that will be different for somebody that doesn't. So all of these nuances really yes. matter when you work with individuals. What I found really fascinating is when you talked about the pre pre diabetic, that kind of population that we don't identify with illness, obviously, the pancreatic fat is causing not only beta cell dysfunction, but that's where we also in our pancreas, we produce our digestive enzymes. And so if our pancreas is fat, and we are not allowing its proper function. Well, no wonder our gut health starts breaking down because without digestive enzymes, you're not going to break down your foods as well to the, you know, amino acid and other smaller molecular levels to then absorb it. So no wonder with, you know, bad foods that not only maybe some of the anti-nutrients like lectins and phytates and um, gluten will um, cause holes in your endothelial cell in your gut, but also you're not producing enough enzymes because you have a fatty pancreas, which I never thought of because most carnivores or people that are ill, when they start this way of eating, they have to start taking digestive enzymes because that's the only way they can start getting assimilated to this way of eating. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. Now, the issue with, you know, we, we, it's pretty easy to quantify liver fat, <laughs> again, because the pancreas lies further down in your abdomen. It's just much more difficult. Now, you know, I mentioned we, um, with the ultrafast CT, that was sort of the, around the beginning of CT technology, both CT and MRI 
continue to improve the number of slices in CT and the number of Tesla and MRIs. Mm -hmm. So the new, and there are new generations of MRI coming. So right now there's not been precise quantification of fat in the pancreas is still problematic. It's, it will be done in investigational places first. And we intend to do that down in Methodist. But, but with the next generation, seven Tesla magnets, it's going to come. And I think we're going to learn the answers to all these questions, which are perfectly logical right. that, you're, that you're asking. I'm very anxious to see that happen and, and see how um, the, the pancreatic fat correlates. I mean, when I was in my, my training in any city hospital, <laughs> the number one um, admission was pancreatitis. Mm-hmm. And that was from alcoholic, they had alcoholic fatty liver disease. And then they also had alcoholic pancreatic disease. Mm-hmm. So that was a fatty pancreas, just like a fatty liver, where you get inflammation, and you develop pancreatitis, and you bring them in, you put an NG to make sure they don't eat anything for a few days, put the pancreas at rest, which means you're putting their enzyme at the enzymes at rest right. and they get better. So all this was happening, right? You know, we weren't taking any pictures of pancreases. And so we knew it was pancreatitis from the enzymes. Right, right. But um, that's going to be uh, with just better testing and better imaging. Uh, that's going to be a, a, a very interesting area. Right. No, I'm definitely interested in your practice then. So for people that have fatty liver, you know, maybe they fail the craft test and it's showing the spike is either later or the 30 minute mark is really high. If there's some type of imbalance, when you suspect fatty pancreas and then also fatty liver, what do you do? What recommendations do you provide your patients to then start reversing some of those things? Well, for one, it's the the low carb diet. And we say, last book was keto friendly because depending on the patient, we use fasting, low carb, Mm -hmm. keto, carnivore, depending on the patient, their personal choices. We need some of your enzymes, I think, for the carnivores at the beginning, they'll say, you know, I can't eat meat, whatever. And the the fatty liver regresses. And in fact, we see people have brought me, when I asked for old labs, and they started on, on low carb before they see me, I see their ALTs coming down right. over months or a year or two. So that means they had the fatty liver that they that they no longer have. One of the interesting things is with gastric by, bypass, mm-hmm. which is a model of a quick change. And with a gastric bypass versus a band or restrictive surgery, sure. you're bypassing the small intestine and you're dumping the food further down in the in the intestine where you develop the GI where the hormone GLP-1 is. And now we have all the new drugs, the GLP-1 agonists like Ozempic and and Wagovi. And in fact, um, in those patients, weren't hitting the the incretin at the beginning of the intestine, uh, GIP, which increases your insulin levels in your pancreas. And so you get dramatic quick reverses, reversals in insulin resistance and in in uh, fatty liver. And so, in fact, your doctor, uh, Robert Lustig in a group where they just took away sugar, you know, for a few weeks and in teenagers, and they already had a lot of regression their fat, of their fatty liver. 
And so it's everything we do to treat insulin resistance, beta cell dysfunction. The thing about the fatty liver, it's an early manifestation. It's not late manifestation. So again, in all the overweight teenagers, they will already have very high insulin levels and the fatty liver because the insulin's turning the sugar, it's uh, de novo lipogenesis into into fat. So that's, and, and now the number one cause of cirrhosis of the liver, which used to be drinking, alcohol works the same way as fructose, it's sugar, 90% goes to the liver. It can't be stored as um, as glycogen and fructose can't be. So it's either burned right away or it turns into, it turns into fat. But today, the number one cause of fatty liver and cirrhosis and liver failure, liver transplants is our diet. It's, right. it's the bad diet. It's no longer alcohol. Right. If people wanted to get tested and their doctors said no, how do we try to get tested for the getting our particle size, our calcium score and our craft test? If our doctor says no, should we find a new doctor or should we push harder? Um, right right now, it's, it's really a no-brainer there. Okay. I actually, in lecturing in the early days, I sometimes had adversarial audiences I never had a question I couldn't answer easily. It's telling you how much arteriosclerosis you have. It's not a very difficult hypothesis to say, we know arteriosclerosis causes heart disease. We know you develop a lot of it before you have a heart attack. And we know it's quantified by the calcium score. In all the major medical centers, if you go for executive physicals anywhere, they include the calcium score now. So that there, um, you can ask an, an, another doctor or you, and, and if you call one of the medical centers where they do it, they can, they'll refer you to somebody who will order it. The small particles, that's done routinely, not real expensive. It's, it's you can have it done uh, through Quest, through LabCorp, there are a few ways to do it, and it's not that expensive, right. and so that can be um, ordered as well. The the one that's most problematic now is getting the craft test, okay. and so that's going to take a little initiative until it's, it's better known. What the, the, Dr. DeFranco really showed the importance and how early in the natural history of diabetes you get insulin resistance and beta cell dysfunction. And that's really, really well known. It's just measuring it. And by the way, I should mention, you can measure it with your doctor. If you just have a fasting insulin and then eat something with carbs and an hour later, two hours later, repeat the insulin, that's going to give you a lot of information. By two hours, your insulin should be back down to normal. So even if you do fasting in two hours, if it's still up, that means you have beta cell dysfunction and insulin resistance. There are some meat eaters that their ferritin gets really high, but they're all their other markers look pretty good. Low CRP, um, blood glucose, insulin, all of those things look good, but their ferritin is getting higher and it's pretty common in the carnivore community. Would you be concerned about that? Yeah, we, you know, we do measure ferritin now. People with severely high ferritin, which we've mainly seen in people with hemochromatosis, they okay. also have a very high hemoglobin in general. Happens in people taking more than physiologic amounts of testosterone also. Everything that the, the, the uh, hemoglobin goes way up. And so the ferritin, it's one of the theories 
why in premenopausal women, besides the hormones, that they don't get coronary disease, the idea with low ferritin, uh, low iron, you're not getting oxidation. So we do have cases of severely high ferritin with premature coronary disease, but those are patients with hemochromatosis who've had it for many, many years. And I've not seen a patient on a carnivore diet yet with a super high ferritin level. Now, again, if they have plaque, they can go give blood. That's what we do with the patients with hemochromatosis. Um, They can give blood. Um, But though I I still, I think that, you know, a a carnivore diet is natural. Right. And people, natural societies where they have it, they weren't dying of heart attacks from high ferritin levels. Right. And when you define super high ferritin, what do you mean? Do you have a range of a number? Uh, Yes, but I have to look back. We don't see it all that much. You know, with the problems where we've seen it, it's been like 600, 800, really, really. So I think the optimal ranges for ferritin, um, and this is not the standard care. So it's not what like LabCorp would say, but it's between mm-hmm. 40 and 150. But you're saying above that by a lot is considered super high. Well, that, that's where we've, where we've seen okay. Okay. the issues okay. and iron, it does oxidize. So, and the, you know, that's the, the issue if you have other problems, small LDL where it's getting oxidized, then, you know, and then adding high iron might be a problem. Sure. But if there's no plaque, that's where doing a calcium score, then a slightly high ferritin level alone, I don't think is going to be, is going to be an issue. Okay. So if somebody has high ferritin, and I don't think I see it as high as 600, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think it's closer to maybe 300, which is still 150 outside of the optimal range, but maybe they, assuming their other markers look pretty good, maybe they just get the calcium score just to make sure. Bringing up the calcium score, you brought up in our one of the talks that the goal about the calcium score closer to zero is ideal, obviously. But if somebody had like 20 as a, their calcium score, the goal isn't to remove the calcium, right? It's to not Yeah, calcium does not go away with treatment. In fact, it progresses because you're calcifying a scar after a plaque rupture and a local thrombosis. So people get scared. I wish our score, you know, for individuals, you can't say an increase year one to date, year two. It always will. We look at images side by side. If If you have that cholesterol pimples controlled, you won't, you'll stop rupturing plaque. Mm -hmm. And we see that there's no longer plaque tracking down the vessel, but the plaque that's already there, the calcium will get a little bit denser and larger. Uh, The other thing I should say with ferritin, if there's a bad family history of coronary disease, if you have a lot of other risk factors, then again, it's, you might delve into it deeper. And I, 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 Again, the worst is you can, uh, if you're doing really well on the carnivore diet, is to is to give blood and to bring it down uh, to bring it down that way. We've had it in some people on high dose testosterone, mm-hmm. on just high hemoglobins, which is a problem in itself. Right. That and then people with family histories, high calcium score, where we're looking for why, and we see these really high ferritins. So if your mother and your grandmother, let's say, struggled with diabetes type two, is the onset of the children much earlier if they were eating a standard American diet to get diagnosed with diabetes? 
Well, certainly insulin resistance and beta cell right. dysfunction. Okay. And the other thing, as far as history, I always ask about the parents because what people used to say, oh, yeah, my grandmother had diabetes, um, but it was late in life and it was only chemical diabetes. They used to say they didn't need insulin. And I say that's a little bit like being a, that's like being a little bit pregnant. It means the gene is there yeah. and you don't wait till you're diabetic. Right. So those are people. And, and, and what I ask in family history, and often I'm seeing high-risk people already have a high calcium score. And I ask about the parent. I said, did they gain weight as adults? And did they gain a belly? And so a lot were never diagnosed. But if they gained a belly, as they got older, then they had the same genes. And Judy, one other thing I want to mention about the, the calcium score is we look if it's a lifelong process, the arteriosclerosis. So again, I mentioned some families where there's a bad family history. We'll do like two brothers. We'll do them where they're in the mid thirties. One got the father's gene already has plaque. It's not a lot of plaque. It's not about to cause a heart attack but it means he got the gene of the father who had bypass surgery. The mother's family, no heart disease. The other brother has a, a, a zero score. So there, um, we're, we're worried about um, the, your lifetime risk. Right. And so just most of the algorithms for cholesterol, everything else is 10-year risk. Well, we want to be around for more than yeah. the next 10 years. So if I have an 80-year-old, and they came in because they got a calcium score and it's 20 versus a 40-year-old with a 20. Well, it, it means it took 40 more years for the 80-year-old for their atherosclerosis to progress. Right. And it's still only 20. That's very, very slow progression. And that, that 80-year-old is at very low risk. Yes. Whereas a 20-year-old with the same score is at high risk because it's, he's had a much shorter exposure to risk factors. He's already developed disease. Those risk factors are more important. The 80-year-old has had 80 years of exposure, whatever risk factors, they're not that important. If they yes. Know. Yes. So context extremely matters with everything that we're talking about. And everyone should always talk with their um, trusted practitioner. But thank you. I think that's really important to understand that if you're younger and you have a higher calcium score, it means a lot more risk than if you're older and you have that same number. And then just how often would you check your calcium score? I know you said it's not every year, but would you, how often? Well, if it's a zero score, it's generally every five years. Okay. Although if you're in your forties or fifties, if you've developed diabetes mm -hmm. or in a sense, new risk factors, it's new exposure, um, then um, about in, in three years. Okay. They are shown to be more likely to develop new calcium in three to five years. Won't cause a heart attack, but it means there's something uh, you can follow. Now, one, we're unique in that if you're young and you have a calcium score that's high for you, you usually can see every calcified lesion. Right. And it's very easy to follow. So, and the radiation is very, very small. It's it's not significant risk. And the cost has come down so much that I actually like to do it every year or two, depending on the, the high risk people, because 
Sometimes from one year to the next, there could be um, you know, just some issues with a different machine hitting things at different angle, some artifact. So if I have a yearly record, then after five years, it's really easy for me to see this person is progressing or they're not progressing. And the earlier you start, following it is a piece of cake. But just um, don't, I hate to say it, it's my score, but don't go by the score, go by new calcified lesions. If there are no new calcified lesions, you're good to go. And, and we, we do that all the time. The initial calcium score gives you, it, it correlates very well yes. with the total amount of plaque. So that's invaluable. It's only, and in a, in a group and over many years, the score can tell you that you're stabilizing. Right, right. It's just when people go from, you know, they have an age 49 and then 50, their score has popped up and they think they're dying. They're, that's not true. So I don't want people to get scared over the short term when their calcium score goes up. Okay. Thank you. For the people that are listening and watching, what are some tips that you provide your patients um, in terms of heart health and just, you know, trying to live as long as they can in, in, in a life that is not riddled with illness? Yeah, we, we think medicine should be more than anything healthy aging. And, <clears throat> you know, you don't, you don't, you want a long health span, we right. talked about. You want to live to an old age and then, you know, die in your sleep. And that's what we're aiming for. One of the things that we're emphasizing now is in the, in the, in the old debate between aerobic exercise and resistance, we've learned from Dr. Ben Bocciccio and others that it's resistance that wins. And for years with coronary calcium, we noticed a lot of marathoners with coronary calcium. And then some, like Tim Noakes, who developed, was a marathoner, developed diabetes. <laughs> and we said, well, it's the, it must be the carb loading. What we're realizing now is when you big build muscle, and I use like sprinters versus marathoners, uh, the sprinters have always been ripped with big muscle strength. And now they probably spend a lot of time with gym in gyms. But before they were doing a lot of weight training, they were still ripped compared to marathons. And it turns out when you build muscle, um, there's a lot of room to store glucose in the form of glycogen. And that glycogen in your muscle is used just when you use that muscle, essentially. So your, your glycogen stores decrease, and then insulin has to come and restore. And so when you have, um, and those are, we call type two or fast twitch fibers. If you're a marathoner, you have type one fibers, which are good for, they don't get tired quickly. They heal quickly. Those are what marathoners use. They don't want heavy muscle, right? Um, but they don't have a lot of room to store glycogen. And so insulin can't get it in. You cause insulin resistance earlier. And that may be why we're seeing diabetes and some marathoners. And we are definitely seeing more coronary calcium earlier disease in, in marathoners. And so we, we recommend that well, the other good thing about the resistance exercise is it doesn't take a lot of time. You know, Dr. Ben says 15 minutes twice a week. And we've seen that in patients. We've seen dramatic improvement is in, in, in insulin sensitivity, 
improved craft tests, improved A1Cs um, as they put on lean body mass, which we, we measure routinely right. um, in our practice uh, versus, versus the fat. So the diet, which in your population is very familiar with that, we've been, we've been very amazed at our patients who are starting simple resistance exercise and they lose belly fat uh, they improve their insulin sensitivity and uh, don't run marathons besides your knees and your back. Yes. And that's true. It's a U-shaped curve. You get the greatest uh-huh. benefit from no exercise being couch to potato to doing exercise. By the way, you know, the typical, the snow shoveler from up north who dies, has a heart, go out and shovel snow, have a heart attack. It's not that shoveling snow is bad for you. It is if you've been a couch potato right. and you do heavy exercise, you're not trained for. You get a big bounce of adrenaline that causes thrombosis. That makes a little clot a, a big one. So, but so doing things slowly with resistance training, that's one of the newest things we're really emphasizing in our practice with kind of amazing results. That's fascinating. Thank you for that. And it makes a lot of sense just breaking down the differences of people that have more mass and obviously storing more glycogen versus the marathoners that don't have a lot. So it's like you use it or it's starting to cause illness in the body. With beta cell dysfunction versus insulin resistance, insulin resistance reverses very rapidly with low carb, with the right exercise. The beta cells, well, one of the, the good things they always said, well, you lost beta cells um, when you kept overstressing them to produce a lot of insulin and they would burn out and that was irreversible. And then you end up even a type two diabetes um, needing insulin. There's work from Mount Sinai, New York, that the beta cells, in a sense, they hibernate. They're not actually dead. And it takes a while for them to come back. In people who just that beta cell dysfunction clearly for a short period of time, we see them come back relatively rapidly. But if somebody has been diabetic for years, it takes longer and it can sometimes take, sometimes take years to come back. But we believe almost all of them do come back. Uh, the Verda group working with diabetics has shown that sometimes it's, it's years, but to get them off insulin. So if you've been struggling with like type two diabetes, been taking some medications to support the high blood sugar levels, those people that eat low carb, do intermittent fasting, you know, do everything that is ideal in terms of diet, it still may take several years to truly heal beta cell dysfunction. Uh, Yes. Yes. You can get dramatic effects. Again, the insulin resistance comes down right away. So we see people on the craft their insulin level doesn't go that high. They just don't get back to normal, but they, most of them we see are, are improving. Okay. And so it's just question how long have they been stressing the beta cells and how, how fast asleep are they, but they shouldn't give up almost all diabetes I think is reversible. Okay. And I've seen that in my practice as well, where people eat low carb for a while and then they are much healthier. Do you think that the levers of carbs, so eating zero carbs versus maybe doing more intermittent fasting, have you seen more healing more quickly with the craft test? Yeah. I mean, certainly people who are most compliant okay. have, have the, the fastest, uh, the fastest healing. 
And, and depending on the patient, I mean, some diabetics who are really addicted to sugar will put on a prolonged fast. We follow them very, very carefully. Right. And they do get dramatic improvement mm-hmm. in insulin. They get off insulin usually uh, quickly. And and some people love to measure things and, and keto is, is great. And if they like meat, we love carnivore because if that's what they're doing, that takes right. away. It's, it's like the fasting. You don't have so many decisions to yes. make. Yes. So it depends on how bad they are, how much mm-hmm. they need to be strict, whether it's some people just all or nothing, right. where we'll start with a longer fast. And then low carb, you, know, you, you get the same, certainly the same positive effects. So it's really individualized. Yes. If people wanted to work with you, do you take anyone remote or is it everyone that's in South Florida? You know, I see sort of high risk patients okay. and family. Uh, we have four internists in the office mm-hmm. who are excellent. And so, um, and, and depending if it's on where the counselors go, the family history, I participate with, with all the inter- internists. So it's agatsoncenter.com where you can contact us and, and talk to our office manager and, and you know, try to find a solution. Okay. Well, we thank- are working on educating and doing something that is scalable and reproducible because this has evolved in the last, recent years and uh, we don't have a big enough office to take care of everybody, unfortunately, right. but we're trying to figure out ways through technology to spread what we're doing. Yes, your information is so invaluable. I will put your links, the website, and I'll share your um, images so that people can understand You know that circle where it's such a big part of that graph of so many of us being not diagnosed for anything. We think we're healthy. We do a low carb diet for six months and we're like, we're healed. And now we could eat a bunch of carbs, yeah. but we still may have beta cell dysfunction. And that's the part where it may, it does take longer to heal. Well, thank you so much for this discussion, Dr. Agustin. I am such a fan. I am honored to even speak with you. I think this calcium score is changing so many people's lives and all this education. And now I hope that people understand the importance of beta cell health and function and how it doesn't matter if your diabetic numbers are diabetic or not at a certain point, if there's a little bit of belly fat, if you're gaining a little bit of weight, these are some of the indicators that you may need to do the craft test, or you may need to stop tapping on insulin's door as much with so much carbohydrates. Well, thank you so much, Judy. I really enjoyed this. Great, great questions. And you and your community are great. Thank you so much. I hope that you learned a lot from this discussion with Dr. Agatston. We already know if you've been in a low carb carnivore keto space for a while now that total cholesterol is not really a beneficial number and that even HDL and LDL matter, but in context. And so oftentimes on a carnivore diet, we see our LDL markers go up, but I hope that this discussion explained why it's because of the particle size and large fluffy particles are not necessarily harmful, but again, it's in context. You can measure your ferritin or you can measure your CAC score or the craft test or do a particle size test. All of these options are available to you. And as long as you 
learn about them and then advocate for yourself, you can prevent a lot of the heart illnesses that come along. I hope that this provided you another lever to get back to optimal health. Please don't forget to subscribe and like this video and also on podcast, make sure to leave a review. Thank you guys so much. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.